morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be back with you this week after being gone last week. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to pause our study on 1 Corinthians, and we're going to consider some things around Easter. This is Holy Week. Happy Holy Week. Happy Palm Sunday. And uh, so we're going to pause. This Sunday, we're going to talk about the cult. And then Friday at good, our Good Friday service, we're going to talk about the cross. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the crown. And then the Sunday after that, we'll talk about the commission. And looking at these four things around Easter and what Easter means for us as Jesus followers. And then we'll get back into the book of 1 Corinthians. So today, we're going to consider the cult that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, and consider what it symbolizes for us. As we do, I'm going to ask that you stand and follow along as I read our text for today, which is Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. It's on page 878 in the Pew Bible. Luke 19, 28 through 44, 878 in the Pew Bible. And Dr. Luke writes the events of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. He says, And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Beth Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and upon and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would consider this event and receive your words this morning for our own sharpening, for our own growth for our own warning and reminder of what makes for peace. Lord, I pray that you would produce a supernatural peace in each one of us. Lord, individually, everyone here in this room today longs for peace. It comes from you, and so would you produce that in us? And, and Lord, everyone here in this room today, I know, longs to be a peacemaker. And so would you produce as a result of the peace that you work internally in each one of us, would you produce peace in our spheres of influence? May we be peacemakers on earth for your glory, for the good of those who we do life with in the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, this 
passage has a haunting verse. In, in verse 42, it says, Jesus himself says, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We all long for peace, right? We want peace in our personal relationships. You want peace with your roommate. You want peace with your parents. You want peace with your spouse. You want peace with your siblings. You want peace with your kids. You want peace with your neighbors. You want peace with your coworkers. You want, you want peace in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, right? And, and, and we all know how, how hard peace is to find. These last couple of years, and, and those of you who have lived twice as long as me, you've had, you have a lot more examples and events to point to about different wars and conflicts that the world has been through, that your own city and community and nation has been through. And, but these last couple of years, for some of us who are a little bit younger, have really opened up our eyes to the lack of peace that exists in the world. We all long for peace, yet we know it's so hard to find. And it's not just hard to find out there, right? We look at the world, you turn on the news, and all it is is full of chaos and division and conflict and fighting. But then if we examine our own lives, if we consider our interpersonal relationships, even within our own families and our friend groups and our spheres of influence and relationship, peace is hard to find. And verse 42 through 44 here contains a, a, a warning and, and something that ought to haunt us as followers of Jesus. When he says, would that you, even you, had known this day what made for peace. There is an ingredient that makes for peace. But he says, it has been hidden from your eyes. And in verses 42 through 44, Jesus predicts to the first century people in Jerusalem this, this fall, the downfall of the city of Jerusalem that would come in 70 AD when the city was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Literally, their city wall torn apart brick by brick. Jesus prophesied to the people that because you didn't know what made for peace, your city will be destroyed. The, the, the external experience of your life, of your, of your attempts at safety and man-made peace and worldly peace, it will be torn apart. So there's a specific consequence here for the people of God in the first century, but there's also a general warning for all of the people of God to keep our eyes open for what makes for peace, to not settle for the world's solutions for peace, but to look for God's solution for peace, God's pathway for peace. And so the question remains, do, do we know what makes for peace? And, and if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around the Bible, you, you at least certainly do in your head. You can quote some verses about peace. But I have to wonder how often it's been hidden from our eyes. Certainly from the eyes of the culture that we live in, and, and so often from the eyes even of the people of God. I mean, really, over the last couple of years, there's been fighting over toilet paper. Remember back two years ago? You could not find toilet paper anywhere. People were fighting over toilet paper. I remember watching a fight break out in a store over a roll of toilet paper. There's been fights over masks and vaccines. There's been protests around our country the last two years over racial injustice, some peaceful and some violent. There's been protests over masks and vaccines and politics. There's been riots in a burnt neighborhood three miles down the road from our church building. 
a capital insurrection. Churches splitting over different visions of how to handle all this and what the solution is. What is, what is the pathway to peace? The world's longing for peace, right? Some people say we, we need peaceful protests that will lead towards a more peaceful environment. Other people say protests tend to turn violent, and so therefore we need to bring law and order to that protest to ensure that peace can be upheld, right? These are, these are worldly solutions, or we need different politicians, we need different policies, we need different, we need different laws to ensure that peace would reign. We all long for peace, but we have a different pathway to get there. And our passage this morning is going to help us understand as the people of God, Christ followers, what makes for peace. What makes for peace. The big idea for this morning is that peace is made by embracing Jesus as king and living out his kingdom ethic. Peace is made certainly for the people of God, but this applies to the world as well, right? Peace actually ought to flow out of the people of God Peace is who God is. Peace, the, the Greek word, and this word is used here a handful of times in our text, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, but this Greek word is irene. It means wholeness, completeness. The, the Old Testament word is shalom, meaning wholeness and completeness. It's when everything works together in unison. This, uh, this last summer, one of my, I was out in Colorado at one of my friends' house who moved to Colorado, and he had a thousand-piece puzzle out on his table, and he was working on it, um, and it took him a couple weeks, and he was just in the middle of it when we were there, and when we were there visiting, I had this idea, I'm going to steal one of his puzzle pieces. I took one piece, stuck it in my pocket, brought it back to Minnesota with me. He finished his puzzle, but was missing that one piece. And he couldn't rest. He couldn't settle it, right? Like, I've got this amazing puzzle. But you know, if you're a puzzle person, I'm not a puzzle person, but I love playing tricks on puzzle people. If you're a puzzle person, you know, like, you just can't rest without that piece, right? You've done all this work, and ah, that one piece is missing. And, and when he came to visit us a few weeks later in Minnesota, he stayed at my house, and, and I had it just sitting on the pillow on our guest bed. It was perfect. <laughs> perfect. But that, that's the, the picture of peace is when everything comes together, when nothing is missing, when the whole picture is able to be seen. And, and, and there's, there, there, there's, I don't want to use the word peace too much, uh, but there's peace in your soul, right? Like you can rest easy because it's all complete. That's the picture of peace, the Old Testament, the New Testament picture of peace. And here Jesus, in this, in this scene on Palm Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem saying, only, if only you had known what really makes for peace. But it's been hidden from you now, and as a result, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're not going to find peace, and there's going to be destruction at increasing levels for you. And so the big idea that we need to grasp is that peace is made by embracing Jesus as king and living out his kingdom ethic. Let me set the scene of what's happening here in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Jesus, as we read, right? I mean, you don't have to set the scene a ton. He rides into Jerusalem on a colt. The, 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 a, a young donkey, an unridden donkey, one that's unbroken. If you've ever been around like horses and donkeys and colts, you know that usually these things have to be broken in. But Jesus comes in on a, a colt, an unridden, unbroken donkey, and this thing obeys him. And he 
enters the city. It, what's happening here in Jerusalem, it's Passover week, which historically tells us the, the city of Jerusalem in the first century was believed to be around 40,000 people. It was a walled city, Jerusalem, walled city. So, so the Roman government like ruled the land, right? But they had given jurisdiction to the Jews in Israel, and they had their holy city, Jerusalem, a walled city. They had all that they needed there in their city, and there were, there were about 40,000 Jews living in the holy city, Jerusalem, and there were more Jews scattered out throughout the villages around the region. And on Passover week, the population of Jerusalem would swell from about 40,000 people to about 240,000 people. Historians say that usually the city populated by about six times. So, so around 640, 650,000 people in this city that normally 40,000 people live. Can you imagine the chaos, the excitement, just the confusion? I grew up in Grand Marais, a city of 1,200 people. And Fisherman's Picnic every August, it would swell to about 5,000 people. It was amazing. And just all the energy and excitement and also conflict in the city, right? When, when something swells in population and size like that. That's what's happening here in Jerusalem this week, Holy Week, that we remember today and this week. There, there, there was a mixed bag of, of tensions in Jerusalem. There, there were Jews who were excited to embrace Jesus as king. He's been doing his earthly ministry for about three years now, and it's been a, kind of a private earthly ministry. He's been healing people. He's been teaching the good news. He's been showing the, the kingdom ethic of God, been demonstrating it for his followers and been teaching his followers, but it's been mostly kind of a private ministry. Word had gotten out. People had started to follow Jesus, but he always kind of disbanded the crowd. He wasn't about a large crowd, a large following, flashy ministry. He was about relationships with real people and, and bringing the kingdom of God to bear person by person. And so as he enters Jerusalem, th th this week, this Passover week, there's a lot of speculation, excitement, skeptics, critics, and opposition. This is what's happening in Jerusalem. Some of the approximately 250,000 people there, some believe that Jesus is going to be the king, the promised Messiah. Some are kind of skeptical. They're waiting the weeds. They're kind of watching to see what unfolds. Some are very critical, right? Especially the religious leaders and the religious establishment because Jesus didn't come up through their ranks. He, he's kind of outside the religious establishment and system critiquing it. I mean, he, he did grow up as a Jew, learning the Torah, learning the law from the local rabbis, but he didn't play by their rules. Well, because he's God and he created the rules himself. He's the fulfillment of the rules. Jesus himself says, I am the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And so in this city, there's all these swirling tensions. Some people believe his statement. Some people want to kill him for his statement. Some people are just unaware they're unsure and it's precisely in this moment like, like this 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 convergence of ideas in this city right i mean over the last couple of years we've seen convergence of ideas in cities in in fact they've always been there are different ideas are different ideals but they've been uncovered and unleashed in the last couple of years and we've seen the chaos and the confusion and the conflict that it has created jesus enters into this he enters into this conflict, into these different opinions, into these different ideals that are, that are bumping up against one another. And it's precisely in this moment that's ripe for controversy and ripe for a takeover. 
There, there, there's people that are just ready to, to riot and to, to overthrow the political system and the religious system and crown Jesus as king. There's zealots in this crowd who wanted to take down the Roman government. Jewish zealots who thought that Rome, the government, was, was destroying their worship. There's just the average followers who are kind of like quiet, you know, kind of passive-aggressive. They're like, eh, we're not going to raise our voice. We're just going to see what happens. There's, there's the religious elites who, who, who love their religious power and authority and rules. And then there's the Roman citizens and, and the rulers. And, and all of this is combined together here in Jerusalem on Passover week. And it's in this moment that Jesus enters this city on a donkey. It's like a, a, a politician's um, public address. And, and how would our politicians and important people and powerful people show up? Right? Well, President Air Force One, a, a presidential candidate, a presidential motorcade. This is like Jesus showing up, or this is like a, a president to be showing up in a Geo Metro without anybody. If you don't know what a Geo Metro is, it's a car that's about the size of this table. It's like one cylinder. My lawnmower has more power than a Geo Metro. And Jesus rolls into town on a donkey, and he's announcing his kingship. He's fulfilling this, this important prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, which everybody in this city, all of the Jews who knew their Old Testament, knew that there was this prophecy, this prediction that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a colt, a, a young, unridden donkey. And so it's in this moment, as he comes into this city, that some people see it, they recognize this prophecy, and they say, this man is the man. This is the one that all the Old Testament prophets were predicting. This is the one that God has been promising his people. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, who's been doing incredible things, coming into Jerusalem, Passover week, on a colt. And Jesus is moving from private ministry into what this week will become a public martyr. This scene shows us Jesus as a true king. See, kings would, at, at times of peace, they would enter cities on donkeys. A donkey was a sign of peace. So in all the surrounding nations, if a king was going to a different, a different city, a different nation, to try and work out a peace treaty, he would come in on a donkey. If he was going into a different city to, to, after, a concrete, after a conquest, in, in a wartime, he would come on a white stallion. Now, Jesus actually does ride a white stallion in Revelation 19, so there is going to be a day when Jesus rides as a victorious king who has conquered the enemy for good. But in this scene, Jesus comes in on a donkey, a, a symbol of peace. He's coming into the holy city to make a peace treaty, a peace agreement, to show the people what true peace is. And it's significant that he doesn't ride in on a white horse in this setting to set up shop and to clean house with a sword and to take down the governmental systems and to clean out the religious institution. He could have done that. He will do that in the future. But here in this scene, he comes on a donkey, a sign of peace, a peace treaty. He comes to show his followers what true peace 
looks like. This scene is a scene of kingship. But not only is it a scene of kingship, in this scene, we see Jesus' kingdom ethic. In the cult, the cloaks, the cry and the consequence that we see here in this passage, we get a, we get a look at Jesus' kingdom ethic. And remember the big idea that true peace comes for us as embracing Jesus as king and then living out his kingdom ethic. And so I want to consider the kingdom ethic that we see here in the cult, the cloaks, the cry, and the consequence. So Jesus comes into the city, and a lot of people will get hung up on, like, if, if you... Um, so verses 29 through 40 through 34, right? Jesus says to his followers, go into the city and you'll find a colt who no one's ever ridden on it and take it. And if the owners see you, tell that the Lord has need of it. People are like, oh, is Jesus condoning theft? Um, a lot of people believe that Jesus actually had prearranged this. And so when they say the Lord has need of it, oh, the owners knew. Um, some people just say, these, you know, if a king shows up and he, and he demands your stuff, this is what happens in that culture. There's a hundred different ways to interpret that. Don't get caught up on it. The point is that Jesus sends his followers. They find a colt. They find this unridden donkey, this young donkey. They bring it to him. And this symbolizes peace and humility. And keep, keep this in mind, church family. As we desire peace, as you desire peace in your own spheres of influence, and as you desire peace in the world, oftentimes we're tempted to think that peace comes through power. Right? We've got to get the right people into power. We need to get the upper hand. We need to, we need to get our voice heard in the conflict. And here Jesus is showing us that true peace comes through humility. True peace is a, is a result of this bottom-up kingdom ethic where Jesus rides into the city on a donkey. He's communicating to his followers that he's not coming to be placed upon a throne. Rather, he's coming to be lifted up on a cross. Peace for the people of God comes through death. It comes through humility. It comes through ridicule. It comes through being the ass. Right? donkey in ass it, it's not a coincidence that jesus rides into the city on an ass a sign of peace in certain situations but also a mockery for a for a for a king and what was happening here in the city is they wanted jesus the zealots and his followers they wanted jesus to ride into town and to clean up the mess that was the religious establishment and the political powers God, would you fix this mess? I'm so sick of the corruption. I'm so sick of the abuse. I'm so sick of the lies in the church and in the world. Would you come and set up shop? And Jesus rides into the city on an ass, a mockery, a, a, a sign of contempt for people who want Jesus to rule with a sword. And many people, that's why in this week between Sunday and, and Thursday, Friday, why this crowd, many in this crowd have turned from shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. Not all of these people turned. In this crowd, remember, there's this, there's this, this conflict of ideologies and people on their spiritual journey in this crowd. Some people humbly embraced Jesus as king. They, they saw that prophecy from Zechariah and said, no, I, I, I know what the scriptures have told me. Jesus is going to come in humility. He's going to be 
killed at the hands of the power. He's not going to seek power. He's going to undercut power with humility. Church, we need to be reminded in the cult, as we consider the imagery of the cult, that the way forward for the people of God is in humility and laying down our, our rights and our authority and our power grabs. The best way to, to undercut power is with humility, not fighting power with power. And then the imagery of the cloaks. There's also, so they put Jesus upon the colt. They put cloaks over him. And then as he rides into town, the crowds are throwing cloaks down in front of the colt. They're also waving palm branches and they're laying palm branches down in front of the colt. The other gospel accounts talk about palm branches. This one doesn't. They throw palm branches and cloaks down on the road. And this is a sign of Jesus' divinity. They would do this for kings when they would come into cities. They would throw cloaks down and palm branches down in front of their war horses and, or in front of their donkeys if it was a time of peace or, a, or a, an attempt to make a peace treaty. This is like rolling out the red carpet for royalty. So again, in this scene, we're seeing Jesus being acknowledged as king. And, and, and in these cloaks, we're seeing, we're seeing this, this wedding of divinity and humanity. Right? He, he, he's on this donkey, this colt, showing humility, showing humanity. He cries. We're going to look at that in just a minute. He sheds tears for our lost people, showing his humanity. And in these cloaks, we see this wedding of divinity and humanity. They're, they're acknowledging him as king, as a divine king. They're throwing down the red carpet for him to walk into the city. They're honoring the man who is humble. These cloaks symbolize for us this, this unique person of who Jesus is. He's both king and servant. He's both God and man. He's, he's all-powerful, and he's humble sitting on a donkey. He's, he's worthy of receiving praise, so much praise that if the people didn't cry out, as he said, says in verse 40, even the stones would cry out. He's creator of heaven and earth, and he's come to walk among creation and to be killed and mocked and ridiculed by his creation. So much so that if they don't praise him, these stones that he created will cry out. And then we see in his cry that Jesus' kingdom is, is one of mourning rejection, not retaliating against his rejectors. Look at as he, he moves through this passage, verse 40, as the religious leaders tell him to, to silence the crowd. Because they're worried about losing their own power, their own place. They're, they're, they're worried that this is, um, that this is a, an upsetting of the religious tradition and expectation. They tell him to be quiet. He says, if they, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He, he sobbed. He, it, it was a verbal weeping. He shed tears. Jesus' kingdom ethic, seen in the cry, seen in his tears, is that he has a heart of brokenness for people who reject him. His desire is to be recognized as king. His desire is that people would experience peace. And the pathway to peace is through embracing Jesus as king and his kingdom ethic. And as he knows this crowd is going to turn and, and reject him and say, crucify him, he already knows that these Pharisees are rejecting him, right? They've just told him, silence the crowd, silence the crowd. And he sees through these hearts of stone. And, and, and he's brokenhearted 
Jesus is significant here. He doesn't cry for himself in the pain that he's about to go through. And as we, as we think about Holy Week and as you think about Good Friday and the torture and the beating and the agony that Jesus went through, he doesn't cry about his own suffering and his own circumstances. And I think it's good for us to, to be reminded of that, that oftentimes our, our tears are shed over our own losses, and, it, and there's a time and a place to shed tears over your own losses, over your, over your own suffering, over your own circumstances. Jesus' tears, Jesus' tears here are for the people who will face the consequence of their rejection. Oh, if only you had known, as verse 42 says, would you, even you, that you had known this day for the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And, and this leads to the consequence, and we see in the consequence another ethic of his kingdom, is that there is a consequence for how we live our life. There's a consequence, positive consequence, where we experience peace, for embracing Jesus as king and living out his kingdom ethic, and there's a consequence, a negative consequence, for those who reject Jesus as king and reject his kingdom ethic. He tells us the specific consequence for the people of God in the first century, the, the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's predicting, prophesying that in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem will be torn apart because they didn't know what made for peace. They didn't know the, the time of visitation. And so there's this, there's this consequence that you and I need to be aware of. There's this reminder for you and I today that, that there is a path towards peace. And, and it's not through the efforts of humans to change the political systems and to, 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 to resurrect or, or revive a religious system. Now, please don't hear me saying that there's never a time and a place to be involved in public policy and politics and religious institutional revival. But know that these things all come with limitations. Jesus shows us that true peace comes by accepting and embracing him as king and living out his kingdom ethic. He says, would you, even you, had known this day the things that made for peace. And so part of the consequence, it, it could be eternal. The consequence for not embracing Jesus as king and living out his kingdom ethic, it could be an eternal consequence where you're banned from God for all of eternity and banished to destruction in hell. It could be temporal, like, like it was in some of, these, some of these Jews who went through the, the, the upheaval in, AD 70, in 70 A.D., some of them may have become followers of Christ and their eternal salvation may have been secured. There was a church in Jerusalem. There were Christians in Jerusalem in the first century. And so when the Roman government overthrew their city, there were people who had eternal life and hope in Jesus. Yet there was still a consequence for the city that their city was torn apart and disciplined and destroyed. And so there's, there's, there's two types of consequences, right? On the negative side. There could be an eternal consequence where you're separated from God for all of eternity, 
There could be a temporal consequence where you just don't experience peace in life. It could be one or the other or both. But here's the, the point for disciples or followers of Jesus. Is that peace is found in who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has overcome. It's not predicated by our circumstances. See, the followers of Jesus who existed through the, the overthrow of Jerusalem, they clung to Jesus. Many of them martyred for their faith, like Jesus. Church history tells it that some of the disciples were crucified, but upside down on a cross because they didn't want to be crucified in the same way as their Savior. And yet in that, they had peace. You remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. He is stoned to death for believing in Jesus. And it says that he looked up into heaven and he had peace from the Holy Spirit. And he said, forgive these people for they know not what they do. Like Jesus did from the cross. Father, forgive these people for that they know not what they do. This is a reminder to us that peace is something internal for the people of God that can't be taken away from us regardless of the conflict that the world is in and that your own personal relationships are in. Peace is a gift for the people of God. And Jesus tells us to look for it in humility, in brokenheartedness, in lowliness. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who, who when reviled, don't revile back, but they give all their stuff away. And so this morning, I have two questions for us as we close down our time in the Word. Have you made peace with God by embracing Jesus as king? Some of you may be new to this whole Christianity thing, and you may, you may be asking questions and trying to discover, and, and here's where it has to start for each one of us. Maybe you've been around religion your whole life, but you still feel like a huge void in your soul for peace. Like that puzzle piece is missing, right? And you just, you're not sure. Peace with God comes by embracing Jesus as Lord and King. And so the invitation for all of us, whether you've done it before or whether you've never done it, is to be reminded that Jesus is King and to make him Lord of your life. In that action, in that step, you will receive peace from God that can't be taken from you by circumstances of life. And then the second question is, are you working, are you working to make peace with others by living out the kingdom ethic demonstrated by Jesus on the cult? See, we receive peace individually from God by embracing Jesus as king. Our, our souls are made whole. We receive a reign, a wholeness, completeness from God. But then we need to live this ethic out in a manner that Jesus shows us here. Symbolizing the, the, the cult, the cloak, the cry, and, and these consequences. In the cult, he symbolizes humility. In the cloak, he symbolizes this, this marriage of divinity and humility. In the cry, he symbolizes a brokenheartedness for those who would reject him. And, and I want to submit to you this morning, church, that if you have received peace from God, and then if you are working to make peace with others by living out this kingdom ethic demonstrated by Jesus in, in the cult, in the cloaks, in the cry, you will experience increasing peace in your life. 
and God will use us, the ambassadors of Christ, to bring peace to bear on this earth. Not through the sword, not through politics, not through growing religious institutions, but through human hearts who have been changed by the radical grace of God, who have received the peace of God, and who are now laying down their lives in humility to bring peace to bear on earth. Amen? That's the call for the Christian. This, this Palm Sunday, as we consider the cult, we're reminded that the way of God is an upside-down way. We're called to die to self. Every Sunday as we gather at Park Community Church, we want to come to the communion table to be reminded that it's time to turn our attention back to Jesus. Weekly, we take communion to acknowledge Jesus as king. This is a way that we do it. We, we're reminded that we're united around a person who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and overcame sin and death in the grave. And so we take communion to acknowledge Jesus as our king. We also take communion as a, as a reminder to ourselves that we've been given new life in him and that we can go out as peacemakers. But the way to make peace is to imitate Jesus, the one who died for the sake of all. So I'm going to invite you to take communion with me this morning as we enter Holy Week. We'll do this again on Good Friday as well. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're striving to remind yourself daily that Jesus is king, and if the desire of your heart is to live out his kingdom ethic, let's take communion together. You'll find a wafer on the top, which symbolizes Jesus' body given for us. The night before Jesus was crucified, he sat with his disciples and he passed that bread and said, take of this, eat of this, and remember my body given for you. Let's eat together. And underneath that layer is the cup after passing the bread to his followers, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the, the covenant of my blood, symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. He passed it to the disciples and said, let's drink of this together. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for your display of humility. Lord, I... I pray that we would receive the new life that comes from you. We acknowledge you as king this morning. But Lord, it's not just in our acknowledgement, it's also in our living out that peace is made. And so I pray that you would make us peacemakers. Lord, transform us. Jesus, we thank you for living the perfect life that we're incapable of living, for dying a sinner's death that we deserve, and for overcoming sin and death in the grave. May you have your way in us, Lord Jesus.